I'm just thinking of something as we're seated here. I'm seated with a man I've admired for so long, uh, Father Daniel Berrigan. And I was thinking of a Bob Dylan song, Blowing in the Wind. And I suppose you have to start thinking when the wind first began to blow and change. Father Berrigan, perhaps it was Pope John on the open window, or perhaps earlier. Where do we begin with you? Your brother, Phil, yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? Well, I think the beginnings you speak of are really uh, always in the family, you know, and in all the chances that parents take and that husbands and wives take and that children take with one another and with, you know, everything that develops and with all the pain and all the punishment and all the uh, mistakes. And uh, I don't know, it's, it just seems to me that out of that develops something very precious and very important for the future. And that, uh, you know, if those bonds are not broken in the early years, or if they're broken, let's say even tragedy happens, if they're broken in a way which is understandable and which a young person can help interpret, uh, then good things follow. And I don't want to be abstract about it. It just seems to me that we had a very difficult time. We were depression children, and we were very poor. Where was this, Father? In uh, Minnesota and then in Syracuse, New York. And uh, I just think there were some suppositions about life together that, 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 that went beyond poverty and went beyond deprivation. I mean, those words were never on our lips. And I had to mingle with city kids to discover that we were poor. I mean, I never understood it in our family. The, the word meant nothing. The fact was that in times when nobody had anything, we had the land, and we had more than enough food, and we had an opportunity to share uh, a lot of stuff with other people. And both my mother and father said, you know, it all belongs to everyone. And we always had people at our table and people staying with us and people working the farm with us. And uh, I think that we were like Northern Appalachian people in geography, but in the spirit, we never understood that kind of sociology or that kind of understanding, you know? This was a farm family in yeah. Minnesota in the 30s. Right, well, Minnesota then transferred back to the East because my father... Uh, I come from the east and, and wanted to go back there and try it there, you know. How many children were there? Anyway? Six boys. Six, six yeah. boys. Yeah. So then your father and your mother, your parents had this feeling of sharing. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was always part of it. And it was never a question, I think, which is the fringe question now or the kind of marginal or uh, even uh, brinksmanship question, you know, will we make it? I don't think that was ever brought up. We never had a sense that we wouldn't make it, you know? But it was always a sense of what do we do with what we have. When did, when did you and your brother Phil decide to become priests? Well, it was much earlier for me. It was just before the Second War. I had been looking around among the religious orders in, let's say, 37 and 38. And uh, uh, we had a tradition in the family of priests and nuns going back on my father's side to his brother and to his uncle, and on my mother's side to various German cousins and uncles and aunts. And um, 
I guess I was the first to say that, you know, I wanted to try it. And then it, for Philip, it was much later. It was after the war. He went all through the war. So it was German-Irish combination. Right. My mother was born in Germany, and my father was born in the eastern U.S., but his parents were from Tipperary. And uh, he met my mother when he was railroading in the West, in Minnesota. So what's interesting here, it seems to me, Father Dan, as we're talking, that... Uh, here were uh, de de were they devout people, devout Catholics, church well, people? Well, it was interesting because my mother was from a very uh, strong but very progressive German stock, and that has meant a great deal in the Chicago area and as far west as Minnesota, especially through the Benedictines. And my mother and father could remember the Benedictine nuns and uh, coming through the snow on sleds and the priest celebrating Mass in their living room and collecting money for the first hospital in that area in northern Minnesota. But my father had been, I think, turned off by the church. He had become a socialist and was kind of outside that whole thing until he met her. And, of course, it was a typical late uh, Irish marriage. He was 34. Mm -hmm. yeah. And... Uh, I guess he got a kind of a new look at it through her and sort of decided that he would try it again <laughs> because by the time we came around, he was very much a practicing Catholic again. That's interesting. You said he was a social. I think the Minnesota at that time, too, in the 30s, a great man employed Olson was governor uh -huh. then, too. Uh -huh. And so all these, all these strands and winds, yeah. I suppose, played a role. It was, it was very interesting. Like my grandmother, my mother's mother had been an immigrant. And she was a great, great woman who survived to see me enter the Jesuits and visit me and then died in about 42. But she had a land claim. She had 40 acres in northern Minnesota that she had gotten from the government, and she had a log cabin there. And we used to summer there when my mother would wash the clothes in the stream and, and tell us not to pay too much attention to bears and beavers and animals like that. And... and um, you know, it was a very primitive beginning, I guess, compared to today. Yeah. I'm thinking about you, when you became a priest. What, what was it led you? Because you weren't thinking of activist uh, no. priesthood no. as today. No. What led you, say, that rather than, say, a well, lawyer or a farmer or whatever? See, I think there was a mixture of things again. Like my mother, I can remember my mother and father both stressing the fact that, you know, we had a history of people who went into the church like that. And yet, there was always a very salubrious warning. Like they would say, you know, let's be real about it. And, you know, if you're just going to make a good thing of it, why go into it? I mean, they had a very elevated, uh, radical view of the priesthood. And my father's sister was a nun who lived to be 91 in New York and met every immigrant wave, worked in Harlem, worked with orphans, worked with Puerto Ricans. And when she had a stroke at 87, uh, uh, went around with a cane teaching uh, unwed mothers at the Foundling Hospital. She may you know? have known Dorothy Day, possibly. Oh, very much yeah. so. That was all part of it, yeah, you know. Yeah, the Catholic worker idea then. Too. And it was, like, like uh, in his family, it was always the idea that, you know, you help the family as long as that was necessary, because they were, like their father died very young of tuberculosis and left 11 children. And the, his brother who became a priest and his sister who became a nun 
were both what we call delayed vocations, you know. He was a plowboy, and, and she was a teacher in a country school. And when, when um, she was 34, she entered the convent, and she lived to be 91 as a Sister of Charity in New York. And this is the same order that are now lying down in the aisles of St. Patrick's mm. in protest against yeah. the Vietnam War. And I always think, what a continuity. Because yeah. she was that way. Now you said something. What a continuity, you said. Yeah. You know, to the layman or the non-Catholic or the man outside, you say, continuity, we think of the opposite. We think of a stern, rather institutional yeah, setup. That's but something was happening oh, at, yeah. long before Pope John came oh, wow. into being. I mean, people like her, I can remember in the 40s, I was teaching in Jersey City, and I'd go over and visit her, and she was already an old woman. She was like 78 and late 70s. She would say, well, um, I suppose you finding it, you're finding it worth it. And I'd say, yeah. And this is with the Jesuits, you know. She'd say, well, stick with it if it's worth it. You know, and she'd say, um, I'm training young young nuns, and I tell them in the morning, uh, we're making our prayer here together, but uh, dust off your knees because I've got a family in the slums here that we better visit. The mother's in the hospital. And all. She would take these young girls who were training to be nuns and take them into scrub an apartment, clean toilets, prepare the food for children, and, and you know, substitute in that family and she had done this for years. She always thought, you know, if you're going to be a spiritual person or a believer, we better get with what is before us. And she never allowed us to forget that, you know? So in your case, then, as we go back, when you joined the Jesuit order, yeah. you really had a, there was a, there was a precedent here, wasn't well, there? Well, there what was. Eventually, you There was. You did. I mean, there, was, there, were, there were things we couldn't forget. Like my father's brother, Ned, um... He had been married, and his wife had died of tuberculosis. They had a little son. And then the son was a deaf mute from birth. And then at 36, he said, I want to be a priest, you know, after being a father and a husband and burying his wife. You know, he said, I want to start over. And there was a lot of trouble and hassle. No one had heard of this, and no one had to go to Rome about it. And he had to take care of this deaf mute son. And he was ordained, and when I was five years old, I can remember like it was yesterday, I was at his first Mass. And uh, a little kid who knew that his uncle had gone through a lot from being a plowboy, an electrician, and a seminarian, and then a priest, and whose son was in the front pew with me. And uh, he was now, you know, determined to serve people in this way. And... Uh, I knew that uh, when I was ordained, like uh, 30 years later, and buried my uncle, celebrating that Mass, that he had died without life insurance and without anything, because he had always given everything away. And that was the way you lived. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was the thing you came up through. When were you ordained? How long? In uh, 52. 52. Yeah. Some uh, 20, 20 years ago? Yeah, and I entered the Jesuits in 39. 39. Which makes me very old. Well, no, no, it leads to something. So the, your days in the seminary. Now, what was happening when you were, I remember the Jesuit order before you were ordained. Was there something happening there at the seminary? Did you come across somebody, influence you, or? 
Well, it was a very long and very arduous course, you know, and a lot of it was very dull and deafening, and and I just about made it at certain points. I had terrible difficulties with the Jesuits, because I think in the ordinary course of things, like my son would have become a Jesuit, you know, because I didn't come out of this middle-class New York posh thing, you know. These were middle-class boys, very well-educated, is and Jesu I was sort of Pardon me, uh, Father, is mm -hmm. Jesuit generally uh, middle class, uh, the seminarian? Oh, I would say so, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And you came... Mm -hmm. Or scholarship boys, yeah. very bright boys who make yeah. it in Jesuit schools, yeah. you know? And I had never had any of this. <laughs> Go ahead, you were saying. Yeah, well, I was saying I came into this whole thing, and, uh, and it was obvious that there was nothing to do but take a back seat if you wanted to stay mm -hmm. or go home. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go home. Because I thought, you know, this was something very good, and I'd like to try it and fight through it. And uh, I think it was several years before I found my place, and it was also several years before the Jesuits found a place for me. And I think they were very patient, too. I don't want to make it a big thing on one side. And, uh, but I think what I had to offer was the value of an outsider uh, and a, a person who had been very poor and who hadn't had these great advantages of a lot of, you know, Latin and Greek and and uh, foreign languages and math and science. I had a very ordinary education, mm. you know. and uh, But I also had a very cool look at them. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the advantage of the outsider who was going to hang around because he found something very important and very valuable and yet didn't want to be an insider. Yeah. And you came out, you, know? you were ordained 52. Yeah. And that was just about the time... Joe McCarthy was well, oh, yeah. his great strength, and Cardinal Spellman sure. was supporting Joe oh, McCarthy. Yeah. So here you became a priest in 52. Yeah, and you know, like totally unconscious. And uh, uh, there was only one professor in all our studies in theology, which was uh, 49 to 53, uh, John Ford, who opened the question of the war and opened the question of saturation bombing and, you know, tried to talk to us really about that. But it just didn't register. In 54, I went to France to uh, finish my studies and met Jesuits who had been, um, you know, shipped off to Germany during the war and um, had suffered bombings of their families and, you know, occupation, the whole bit. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I just began to live. That's the only way I can describe mm -hmm. it. I found in France my spiritual birthplace. In France. Oh, yeah. And I found there an atmosphere in which I could say yes to my church in a new way, an entirely new way. In France, did you come across those who were worker priests? Oh, sure. That was part of it. Oh, oh yeah. I was very close to them. Would you mind describing the worker priests for those who... Well, uh, after the Second War in France, there developed a movement sponsored mainly by an extraordinary cardinal of Paris, Cardinal Seward, and a very amazing young priest who died very young, uh, Abbe Gaudin. And Gaudin was a sociologist who wrote a book called uh, France, Pays de Mission, which uh, Sheedon Ward translated as France Pagan. And he was making a study of the, uh, of the absolute dissociation that French workers were making from the church and saying, let's start over. And the cardinal listened, you know, like no cardinal ever did in his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they developed teams of priests who would go into the mines and factories and fishing fleets and uh, uh, 
everywhere, stores, and just work for their living, and discover again what it might be to be a Christian and a minister. That had an and, effect on you, did it? Well, you know, that was in the 40s, and we had studied these people uh, in the seminary, and then when I went over there and met them, it was uh, very powerful. So France then, France in 54. Yeah, and don't forget too, it was it was the close of the Indo-Chinese War. Uh, it was the NBN fool. Now we come to something, don't we? You're just at the time, we can take a break any time you want. Yeah. The time when uh, France was about to pull out right. the Indo-Chinese War, yeah. and you were there, and I suppose that was on the air too, wasn't it? When you were well, I mean, it, w it was a time of extraordinary disintegration in France and humiliation, and I can remember... Uh, some of my fellow Jesuits saying, you know, it's all going under, and if anything survives of French culture or history, it will be in French Canada, we're finished and all that, you know. It was a very bitter time for them. And I think I partook of all that, you know, in a way that I had never done at home. That is the hope and the despair, and the end of the colonial era and the beginning of this whatever is something. Let's just not leave yeah. this for a moment. This is very, very fascinating. You, Dan Berrigan, young American priest from France in 54, yeah. and people, friends of yours, and like people saying, France has ended, we've got to leave. Repression may be in the air. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the colonies lost. There was a tremendous defeat by sure. colonial people yeah. for the first time in the history of the world, you know. Right. Uh, de defeating a technologically greater country, right. France. And it's almost an analogous, in a sense, to what may be here at this moment. Well, I, th I think, you know, in, in a way that's much less pernicious and lethal, the French were trying to recover or sort of discover out of all that humiliation some sense of themselves, and were not succeeding very well. I mean, it's very difficult to compare France 20 years later, having been back there last week, you know, with that sense of You were utter, back last week yeah, uh, in Paris. Yeah, to meet with the Vietnamese, and very ironically, you know, like 20 years between. And they... Um, they just had given up on themselves, you know? And um, I think the feeling was that we can't hold this political fabric together. And I can remember in uh, some of the French magazines the the irony, where, you know, they had undergone this tremendous humiliation at the NBN Fool. And they were playing up, you know, by way of salvaging themselves, not the fact that they had been defeated by this little kind of obscure figure, General Giap but that there, there had been a French nurse, whose name I forget, who had been heroic in the whole siege of the fort there, and the party match, and the others were all playing up this one woman. And I thought, you know, this is the only way you can save yourself. You say, well, somebody has survived, and somebody has been compassionate, but the larger political issues are gone, and because of that war, you can't even hold together your own country. And that's the confession you make. So Which this is, is devastating. So this is 54. How yeah. long were you in, in France then? One year. So you came back to America, U.S. in 55. Right. And then went back to France to live um, like uh, 10 years later in 63. And in between taught and, you know. So what happened between 55 and 63? Well, <laughs> I guess my big mistake was I tried to put to work what I learned in France. <laughs> and I was in a lot of trouble. And I was teaching in uh, Brooklyn and in Syracuse and uh, writing, and um, and then was uh, it was suggested that I go back to France for another year. <laughs> oh, oh, I 63. See. This is still be this before. 
this trouble before Pope John? Well, uh, Pope John and the Council had just begun, mm -hmm. and uh, it, well, in fact, Pope John, let's see, had died, I think, in '62. Um, but a lot of new things were in the air, and the civil rights thing, and um, Phil and I had gone through a very difficult period trying to decide whether or not we could stay with everything. By this time, Phil, Phil had joined the priesthood. Yeah, well, Phil went in the seminary and was ordained in the late 50s after going through the war, the Second War. And, uh, you know, he'd come in with all that experience and uh, worked in a very poor parish in Washington and then gone on to New Orleans where he was teaching in a uh, black school. And we were exchanging student projects and students uh, both places, north and south. And both of us, I think, getting a mounting sense of something that I uh, sensed uh, from him and something I would think that King came on much later, you know, as Vietnam developed. That is the sense that uh, technology and racism were joining to make Vietnam inevitable. We weren't even using the word Vietnam then. That was too early. But... Uh, you know, it was just the idea that, that the Cold War was preparing people to, to, to accept anything, you know, abroad, and that we couldn't separate the Cold War, you know, freezing of consciences and the fact of a massive historical racism. We couldn't separate those facts from what, what, what might happen or was gathering, you know. Mm. And by 64, it was quite clear that the shape of that was Vietnam. Well, that's, I'm thinking about you and your brother, uh, yourself at this moment, yeah. that everything seems to be fusing, beginnings, yeah. the thoughts of your father, your yeah. mother, your aunt, <laughs> and it's yeah. all coming into being, yeah. and you said technology and racism, see? Yeah. the civil rights movement in the meantime, your brother was involved in that in the deep right. south, right. and you and he corresponded, right. and you had difficulties with the institution, yeah. and now things were kind of... Into See, place. when I came back from Europe, I came back in 64 again after a year abroad, and I had been to Russia and Eastern Europe and all over Africa, and I, I was really kind of tramping around trying to find out where things were going, and I came back to the airport, and Phil picked me up in uh, Kennedy in 64, and it was like that 10-mile drive into the city. I hadn't seen him in a year, and I suddenly said to myself, you know, I no longer have a disciple. I have an equal. You know? Well, in a sense, you were the teacher of your brother in the beginning. Well, I think he would say that, too, like it was the big brother, you know. Yeah. That was always something that was a difficulty and a, and a, and a challenge. And it was good and bad. Yeah. It was very tough, too, because we're very, you know, yeah. strong. How many years younger is he than you? Yeah, three years. Three. But now something had well, happened. Well, I knew you suddenly, met. you know, this yeah. guy is not asking me about things. He's sort of saying, you know, <laughs> here's uh, yeah. where we go. Yeah. And uh, it was a partnership. It was yeah. a very yeah. new relationship, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, well, that was something to swallow on and, and something to rejoice in. This know. is interesting. There are two things that were happening here. There was a personal relationship that was altering. Oh, your yeah. younger brother now became your equal. Oh, Plus, yeah. both of you were recognizing something happening yeah. inside yourselves. Absolutely. So he was, at that point, he was teaching in a little seminary up at Newburgh. And, uh, like they were having great troubles with him. That's a hideous area, you know, that sort of depressed Hudson Valley area. And, uh, 
And Phil was like... Is that rural, too? Is that rural? Well, it's, there's these small towns, you know, that mm. were formerly mill towns along mm. the Hudson. Mm. Newburgh, uh, Plattsburgh. No, well, that's for the north, but... Uh, um, it goes all, well, I forget now some of the other names, but Peekskill is right across from there, you know. And there were areas where everything was ripe for racism because Milltown people were being deprived by the departure of the mills and all that, and blacks were moving from New York, and you know, there was a lot of bad stuff in the air. And Phil was going around there talking about, let's get seminarians to take housing reports, and let's find out who are the slum landlords. He was just doing a very good basic sociological work there. And it obviously it was politically very dangerous because his order had black and white seminarians together and they were supposed to stay up on this hill being supportive from outside. The old stuff about, you know, the landlords and keep away from the town. And, and he was saying, you know, part of your education is to get to know what whites are and what blacks are in the city. So in Newburgh especially, all hell broke loose because he was also <laughs> helping peace groups form and saying, you know, black people are in trouble because the Vietnamese are in trouble. And this was unheard of. Who was talking this way? It was 63 and yeah. 4, you know? Yeah. And in the, in, in the absolutely deprived Hudson Valley is suddenly this idiot priest is talking <laughs> not only about racism, which has never been raised, but about the war mm -hmm. and racism, mm -hmm. you know? And drawing connections that Martin King drew only much later. Yeah much later. In other words, Philip was saying to all kinds of audiences, we are in trouble because we are sons and daughters of the Cold War, because technology has gone uh, anti-human, and because racism is helping us, pell-mell, so we are now ready to export death as our chief product. And it's going to be big. People didn't know what is this guy about. I mean, you know, this was yeah. the early '60s. Yeah. You don't talk this way, yeah. you yeah. know. What was the re what was the reaction? Well, he was kicked out. He was kicked out. Yeah, he was yeah. kicked into Baltimore, and I can remember, you know, I can remember like I was just back from Europe, and oh, Phil's book was out, and suddenly one rainy night in the summer of '64. Maybe 65, I have to check. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the two of us are, are tooling south in a rented car in the rain. Mm -hmm. And it's the first of all these transfers and all. And, and I'm saying I'm going with him because, you know, you go with your brother. Yeah. And I'm going to see him into this parish and see what kind of a welcome he gets. And I'm going to know what's happening to him, you know. Mm -hmm. And we got all his books in the <laughs> back seat because that's all he took with him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's the first of many of these moves, you know, mm -hmm. where you just say, okay. You and your brother were touring then, where, deep south, different different states? Oh, no, we went to Baltimore because he was Baltimore. assigned there when he was kicked out of Newburgh. So it was in Baltimore. Yeah. And he, he, he started his work there in this very poor Baltimore parish, St. Uh, Peter Claver. And it's there, in Peter Claver, that he and others began the Baltimore Peace Union, and the Baltimore Four. And it's in that parish that they decided they were going to pour blood and get in trouble. This is 60... Well, this takes us into four, five, six, okay. organizing. See, he's doing housing work, he's yeah. doing neighborhood organizing, yeah. he's embarrassing the politicians, and he is also getting ready to break the law on the war. Ah, so now we come, right. to, now we come to the big step, don't we? Right. Uh, 
67. Uh, civil disobedience. Right. Of breaking the law and doing something to the right. draft cards. Right. So they 67. drew their blood in 67 and poured the blood. The Baltimore Four. Four. Yeah. Yeah. We're all Catholics. No, there was a there was a there was a Protestant minister named Reverend Mengold, and there was uh, Tom Lewis, who was an artist, and there was uh, David Eberhardt, who was a Catholic teacher, and there was Phil. I love that phrase. It says, and Tom Lewis was an artist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Last Catholic Protestant artist. Oh, well, he was a Catholic too, but still, yeah. That was good. So yeah. that was. Let's six, get some more booze. I think so. appropriately libated, if there is such a verb. We continue, Father Daniel Berrigan and the story. This was, now this first step that Phil took yeah. with the Baltimore Four was 67. Seven. Yeah. Now that's... I was, I was involved in uh, coming down to Washington for the Pentagon and uh, got locked up uh, on that November night. November, September, I forget, but anyway. Um, we were all herded into a big camp in Aquaquan, Virginia, like hundreds of us. And some of us decided to stay on because some young people were in danger and we didn't want to leave. So we fasted and stayed on for a week and they transferred us to the Washington jail. And I got out at the end of that week and I'll never forget, a priest picked me up, a friend from Washington, and uh, we were crossing town and he had the radio on and the radio said four Baltimore people have been captured for pouring blood on draft files this afternoon. <laughs> and it was Philip, you know, and the others. I knew it was going to happen, but I was so relieved to know that it had come off well. And they said, you know, they're in jail and all this stuff. So I got out, and we broke our fast that night at a commune in Baltimore. And I called my mother, and I said, uh, well, I'm out. And she said, uh, okay. She said, where's Phil? And I said, well, Phil's in. And she said, well, now let me get this straight. She, <laughs> says, she says, you're out and he's in? And I said, yeah. I said, he did something else that you'll read about in the morning. But I said, everything's fine and we're both okay. But it was just, it was a marvelous moment because, you know, she was taking it all so lovely and stride. On that point, uh, yeah. Dan, this, your mother, <laughs> this is interesting. Let's, yeah. let's stick with her for a minute. Here is a... An elderly woman now. Yeah, right. A uh, German Catholic woman. Mm. Uh, six, seven children. No, six boys. Six boys. Yeah. And here are two of the boys. <laughs> the priests. priests. The priests. Yeah. Oh, you two the only priests. The only the priests. And so what was her wow. thought? Well, I mean, I think, you know, without getting um, melodramatic at all, that both these people, my mother and father, always said... Um, like the church and the ministry is not a way of getting on an escalator. I think it was very basic with them, you know? I mean, they never expected us to make it because we came, became priests. And, you know, that was very, very rare because most people were making it. And most parents expected to make it. You mean if making their sons it economically or in status? Well, it was like status, you know? Mm -hmm. And especially with the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. If your son was a Jesuit, you had really made it. Mm -hmm. You know, because that was the... The elite. That's group. the Ivy League oh. of, of Catholicism. And you could always know that, you know, if your boy really had brains and, you know, if he persevered through this very rough training and all that, 
as a parent, you were just about the most honored person in the mm. church, you know. But they like always, I don't. They've always rode with that very loose, and um, I think we helped them early, and they helped us early in the sense that we got them used to the idea that we weren't going to make it. I mean, that was absurd. We didn't want that, you know, and yet we wanted to stay with the Jesuits and yeah. this. So your mother then sort of took it in stride. Well, yeah, she said, "Oh, you're out and fills in." She said. Okay, she said, I have it straight. All right, <laughs> like that. Was your father? Uh, yeah, he was still living. And my father had been hurt in a fall, and um, so she would tell him, like, you know, she was the one on the phone. But, you know, like, when we got home, he was fine, too. And I haven't asked about your brothers. Yeah. What were their reactions, Thomas? Well, uh, my two oldest brothers, I think, have been, have, have been very rough, and uh, that was like the divisions, and... The Irish families, you know. My oldest brother was a big Second World War hero, and uh, like he was, with, he was very much like the older middle-aged prisoners I was with, who had never gotten over the Second World War, and for that reason were very unequipped to deal with their own sons. And equivalently, I guess he was un unable to deal with us. And then my second brother um, also was in the second you war. You and Bill are where? We're the two youngest. Oh. Yeah. The older brothers and you are the two youngest yeah. priests, and they're the ones who were in trouble. Yeah, right. No, okay. So the two oldest, I think, took it hardest, you know. And um, uh, when we were in jail, it was John, the second oldest boy, who went on the radio and denounced us and went to the papers and talked about, you know, if these men are in jail, they should be. And it was just very bad. It broke my mother's heart, really. Mm. And then Jim, the third boy, is a teacher in the Virgin Islands. And, you know, he's got four beautiful, talented kids. And I think fighting through understanding them has helped him understand us. Mm -hmm. That's going pretty well. And then the fourth boy, Jerry, is a professor in Syracuse. And... Uh, well, he kept the whole thing together with his wife. Mm. Oh, yeah. Both, you know, supporting us in jail and taking care of the old folks and and taking care of the press and just doing the whole job. It occurred to me, Dan, uh, Father mm. Dan Berrigan, as we're talking now, six boys, your father, mother, almost represent every aspect of our society. Is that right? I'm just thinking out loud yeah. as you're talking. Well, I was thinking of the big, you know, the reconciliation with my father, you know, I think who had taken, you know, the sons very hard toward the end. And, uh, um, you know, he lived through so much and so much change and all. And, and um, he was the last of 11 children and he died at 91, imagine. And several of his brothers and sisters lived to be over 90. And he had found our development very difficult, but it stayed with us. But I can only say that, you know, when he was dying, it was difficult on both sides. And I think he's one of the few people I ever knew who died because he wanted to, you know. And everybody said he could live to be 100. This old guy is so tough and so strong and all that. You know, but he just sort of, I think he got, he said to, my, to himself, like, I can't find enough for me anymore, and like, you know, let's get this thing over with. It was very strange, you know. He like made an act of the will to go out with it. Mm. 
And we were sharing the vigil because we all wanted someone to be with him. And um, in a sense, I think I was the son who was more the supplanter, you know, in the Old Testament sense. Like I was the one who had done most of the things that he wanted to do, you know. And... Uh, and like writing and publishing and then going to jail. You felt that's what your father wanted to do. Well, this poetic impulse. Yeah. Oh, he had. well, I know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even though he worked hard with his oh, hands yeah. most of his life. Well, also, he had yeah. memorized most of Shakespeare by heart. Is that so? Yeah. I mean, he just yeah. was a great, great man with the books and with poetry and all that, you know, and, uh, and writing. And you know, everybody in the family knew that, you know, he had great ambitions along these lines, but he had never, never had time and energy and money and all these things to do it, you know. So it came toward the end, and I was summoned one night from Cornell, and, you know, like, here's the priest who has made it and all this stuff. But in a sense that I could despise, because I wanted to go to, you know, go further too. And they said, well, Pop is very bad, come on up. And so I went up. And then my brother Jerry was... So exhausted. That Jerry I said, was uh, the guy just older than me. Yeah, and I said. The way was the mucilage. Oh yeah, and was so loving, and devoted to every element of this idiot family. You know. So Jerry, I. So I said to him, you know, go on home and get some sleep, and I'll stay up tonight. And so, um, you know, I knew he was going to die that night. You know, and. Um, so I was, I brought with me, I can remember the books and everything, you know, to read. And I was reading George Dennison's book on the lives of children, mm -hmm. you know, which I love so book. much, you know. On education, yeah. And I thought, how nice, you know, to be reading this because this is the way we pass things. And uh, I knew George and loved his work and all. And I would put the book down and go over to my father and we would pray together and I would hold his hand and all. And, um, like, he was dying very hard because he was so alive, you know. And um, he was very tough. And I knew he knew I was there. And especially when we would pray, he would stop and it would be much more listening and all. And um, uh, I just felt there was a great reconciliation that night, you yeah. know. You felt that perhaps as your father was dying that he saw in you some of the visions or well, ideas he may have had in mind. Perhaps he didn't quite... Well, I just think maybe it was simpler than that. I just think that he forgave me and I forgave him, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, Now, this was when, this was when... Uh, this so 69. 69, that's about three Yeah, years. I was on appeal from Catonsville. I mean, he had known everything when about this. When did Catonsville? 68. When, that was 68. Yeah. So he had gone through our trial, and and now we were on appeal, and he knew we were going to jail and all this, you know. So, uh, so, so he died about 8 in the morning, and he died like a child, and it was very simple at the end. You say he died like a child. Yeah, well, he just stopped breathing. I mean, there was just no struggle at all. And uh, I think that it was the most I could have hoped for, you know. I mean, it was very beautiful. So we took his belongings. I called Jerry and just said, you know, yeah, he's gone. And um, Jerry came and kissed him, and, you know, that was it. And we took his belongings home in a paper bag, which I think is just 
what he wanted. You know, that was all he had. Yeah, a paper bag, a brown paper bag. Like he had no insurance, and he never wanted any of this stuff. And um, I mean, at the end, we knew among ourselves whether we could take it or like it or not. We knew that we were all he had, Mm. and we were all he wanted. You know, there's something called continuity. This came in in our in your reflections earlier, the beginning of this conversation. And a sense of continuity. Your father died. Yeah. Maybe what he didn't accomplish was accomplished or yeah. is being accomplished. Yeah. Because continuity, you talked about early beginnings, you talked yeah. about your aunt and and a certain kind of feeling. Yeah. Maybe what you and your brother Phil are doing, in a sense, is what he inchoately may have. I think so. Had in mind. I mean, I just don't have any serious doubts yeah. about that. I, I think that, you know, if life goes on, it goes on through sons and... The struggle is to allow the son's space to be, you know, what you had hoped for but couldn't be. And well, I think things go through a crisis and a spasm, and then, and then you sort of group and you go on, you know. And so now we yeah. come back to you and your brother Phil, and you are out in the middle of things now, the maelstrom. And there you are. One before I continue, you spoke of your older brothers and they're feeling differently. Yeah. Do they have children? Oh, sure. What are they, your nephews and nieces? I'm curious. (laughs) Well, like, one little example of this would be my oldest brother's family. They have six children. They lost one child and then have six. And, like, two nights after I was out of jail, they just called up from Minnesota to uh, Syracuse, where I was visiting my mother, and just lined up to talk to me, you know. Mm. And they that was lovely. Yeah, all the kids and everybody, you know, and hello and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And it was like a reunion again, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, my brother Jim's children, who are uh, in New York mostly, uh, that's another whole story. They're very talented and very alive. And one of their daughters was a big figure in the, in the uh, Harrisburg defense. And uh, these children have really busted loose and helped their parents, you know. And uh, so I think in finding that their own children have to go in uh, very unexpected directions, they find, well, you know, Dan and Phil can't be that crazy, you know, mm. something like that. Isn't so it all kind of all works together. All maybe. I don't know. May- maybe. So we come back now to you and Phil. Yeah. And what you've been doing, the disobedience of the law. Yeah. The law, capital L. Yeah. Well, they said to me, and you know, when I came up for parole there in, in Danbury, they said, uh, "Perhaps to recount parole for what?" Let's go oh, back to Catonsville. This was just, you know, uh, the uh, thing at Catonsville. We returned down on parole after one third of our sentence. What happened? Just for those who may not recall, yeah. what happened at Catonsville? Well, we, nine of us burned draft files in '68, in one of the first of many actions aimed against uh, draft uh, card centers, parole centers. Um, Later it expanded into industrial centers of militarized research and all that. But I guess we were one of the first groups and perforce we were Catholic because, well, we were the only people we could find. And um, so we went in there and burned A1 files and um, uh, went to jail later for it, you know, after a period of underground and all that. So, uh, 
this is like skipping from seven okay. from sixty eight to seventy two. But when I came up for parole in late in seventy one, uh, they said, "Well, have you repented of your crime?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I repented." And they said, "Well, uh, what do you mean by that?" And I said, "Well, I repent of the fact that I didn't do it sooner." Mm. You know, which I feel yeah. the only thing I regret is it's that something I, you said. Of course, it's quite a remarkable comment. It's been quoted many times. You are condemned and arrested for burning paper, yeah. whereas burning children or something. Yeah, entirely. right. Yeah, we burn paper instead of children. And that became a saying around, you know, and I think, you know, it's a very important distinction that we tried to raise at Catonsville between the, uh, let's say, the idolatrous or murderous uses of property and the uh, murderous misuse of human life. So we said, well, let's go and burn papers because we don't want to burn children. So we, we, we found this formula for napalm in a Green Beret handbook through the wife of one of the Green Beret artists in Napalm. And she read the formula on the phone to us. Let me get this. The wife of a Green Beret? Yeah. He was just back from Vietnam, and he had a handbook, and we were trying to find out, how do you make homemade Napalm? So she read the formula out of the handbook. From California to New York. Did she know who you were, what you had in mind? I think, I, I see, I wasn't in on that phase of it. I think she knew a couple of the people personally and was willing to take that little chance, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was just like reading something over the phone. Mm -hmm. It wasn't anything very big. I mean, she was sympathetic to you is what I mean. She was what? Sympathetic to you? I guess so, ah. yeah. I never talked to her on yeah. the phone or anything yeah. like that. And this is one of the intangibles, uh, Father Dan, Father Daniel Berrigan. The amount, of, the number of people you may have reached without realizing it, or affected without yeah. realizing it. Yeah. Well, I, I think you know nobody feels like making any claims on a night like this because, I mean, we're all facing the horror of what Nixon has launched, and I'm facing the fact that I was with the Vietnamese in Paris only a week ago, and this was. Uh, we're talking now, uh, early June, 1972, right. and you were in Paris, and you were there. Right. For you meet with the, with the uh, meeting with both delegations, yeah. mm -hmm. and then my friends, uh, many four of my friends have just come back from Hanoi, and I've been talking with them. So, you know, one has to put together this story without being destroyed by it, because one can be furious and angry and frustrated, and we all are. But the real question is not to make that a luxury, you know. And I feel that my emotional life must be a resource and that uh, I don't have a right to be uh, depressed or anything as long as that's merely, uh, what would you say, kind of uh, self-indulgent or luxurious, you know? So I come back and report to friends in Chicago about the Vietnamese in Paris, and I think I face with a certain reality the death of children and the death of the innocent and the destruction of hospitals and schools and uh, railway stations and people, people everywhere, and um, especially with Jewish friends, I try to be courageous and face the question of another Hitler, which the Vietnamese opened for me, the, the first time in their, in their war that they're calling a president of the U.S. another Hitler. And, uh, you know, I think everything is, is a luxury and is a waste until we can say, you know, where do we go? And uh, 
everything in the experience of my friends and myself out of prison is where do we go? I mean, we're not just sort of hanging around talking about prison because I think that becomes a folklore very quickly and an excuse and a kind of, ex uh, I say, the kind of um, thing that Americans are so skilled in that is to say, let's have a celebrity mm -hmm. as a way of avoiding the issues. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, very well. And, um, very well. That was one of the hardest things I had to deal with in coming out of jail, that I kept trying to raise issues and my friends didn't want issues. Yeah. They wanted me as a celebrity, yeah. which is, you know, their way of saying, well, yeah. we can't face issues. Yeah. There's a question of seeing Daniel Berrigan, and you were saying there's something else involved here. Oh, I am this guy. Wow, wow. So we come to that. See, we come to something else, don't we? We come to media. We come to Dan Barrigan of the world in which we live, but yeah. also I've got to ask this one question about you and Phil and the church, you know, yeah. and the development that's happened. Not since, well, since Paul, but since it would have happened anyway, perhaps the young Catholic activists, once yeah. upon a time, was rigid of all ecclesiastical institutions. Yeah. And now seems the most militant, seems, seems the most, uh, you know, adventurous yeah. in a very humanistic way. Well, I, you know, I just don't have any time for self-congratulation. Yeah. I think that, you know, after a long criminal period, the Catholic Church in the United States has awakened to a degree. It's not a very great degree. I leave Chicago tonight, or in the morning, and I go back to New York, and on Sunday, I can speak about two things that are going to occur. Number one, in the morning, Another group of nuns and priests are going into the cathedral and perform civil disobedience, which is a most amazing thing. That is to say, the Cardinal of New York can no longer claim his own turf, you know? And that's been going on for weeks now. Every week, this guy has had to sit there and see cops drag nuns and priests out from his own cathedral, you know? It's a little new thing. And then the afternoon, the, the Cardinal, since he's trying to play ball with all sorts of stuff, he said, you can have the cathedral for a peace mass. So for the first time in my life, I'm going to preach in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Sunday afternoon. You are? Yeah. And, you know, I, I hate that place. I despise it. I think for me to go in there is as revolting emotionally as going into the Pentagon. But I'm going in there because I feel I can speak there to a lot of very good people, you know? about the lives and deaths of people. By the time I'm this program it. is on, you, Daniel Berrigan, S.J., will have preached a Mass at St. Patrick's, Patrick's Cathedral. Cathedral. Okay. First time in my life, you know. And uh, I'm sure, you know, we're just going to keep that issue alive, yeah. be not because we're attached mm -hmm. to uh, Catholic real estate, but because... Uh, Catholicism in the States has a long history of criminality with regard to the war. And, you know, that's, that's a podium. That's a place to talk from. So where does this leave us now? Are you seated here? And uh, you, you must be very tired and fatigued because you've been talking, you've been traveling Paris here, different cities, to raise funds for a variety of uh, yeah. people, that is, to end the barbarity yeah. in Indochina. See, I think, uh, like, you could have been a little bit more crude or cruel or something and said, you know, where do Catholics go? And and I think, uh, 
I may no, ask, these are good not questions. Where do Catholics go? Yeah. Where do people of any denomination, yeah, no right, denomination, right. go? But see, uh, I think that the contribution that we have to make is probably across the board. I mean, I've always felt that that you join with people who are decent from whatever background or tradition. Um, but our case was a, was a kind of special one, you know, like everybody thinks this case is special, but I think that, um, you know, I love very much where I come from, and I always tried to say to students at Cornell and elsewhere that, you know, it's very important to come from somewhere, you know, and the trouble with a lot of Americans, including Nixon and Kissinger, they don't really come from somewhere. And our strength is to come from somewhere, which is to search out, you know, the really radical roots of Catholicism or Judaism or Buddhism or I don't know what, you know, or the American experience. I, you know, if there's something radical there, look for it. But come from somewhere if you want to go somewhere, you know. The trouble with most of us is we're trying to go somewhere and we don't come from anywhere. You know what I mean? Something you just said, you spoke of roots, radicalism. The word yeah. radical means to yeah. the root of. Roots. Yeah. Now, unless you know your roots, and you, the very beginning of this conversation almost an hour ago, which yeah. I will mercifully bring to a close because I'll think of you and your <laughs> energy that you're giving and your, and your life you're giving so much. But you spoke of roots yeah. and your father, your mother, beginnings, your aunt. Yeah. And this, if you know where you came from, you have an idea. Not where you will go, at least where you might go. Yeah. And you speak about people who have no beginnings, it seems. Oh, yeah. Or a vacuum. And I think, you know, that's the American experience, to, to, to have come from nowhere and to try to go somewhere. And I don't think it can be done. I really think, you know, like you could say to me, well, the majority of young people condemned to Vietnam as soldiers haven't had the kind of privilege you have. That's right, right. And I don't know what to do about that, you know. I think most of the war crimes of the common soldier have been committed because young people were drafted into that dragnet who had come from nowhere and were ordered to go somewhere. And they couldn't identify where they went to because they were nobody. And, you know, you can't be somebody if you come from nowhere. You know, I keep playing with that because to me that's everything. I must offer you this quick, very quick story that's... In a way, what you're saying, I was in Hamburg yeah. a couple of years ago, a young yeah. rock singer, young German kid, Kaylee Freinick, who despised his Nazi grandfather yeah. and his semi-Nazi father, but also believed nothing because he was lied so much to. Sure. As young kids sure. watching TV and the commercials yeah. believed nothing, he didn't believe Auschwitz yeah. either ever happened. As a result of which, now you talk about young Americans perhaps oh, doing what yeah. they did. In there is no belief in anything, there yeah. is no history. There's no history, yeah. there's no past on the yeah. one hand, and there's nowhere to go on the other. You know what I mean? So therefore, whatever like is done I, doesn't matter. Well, I'm really talking about people of our generation. I think that we have never offered in any, you know, real uh, uh, way an older generation that would say America is worth trying. You know, it's worth going toward. And there are people who are in the place of your parents in the church or in society or in politics or in professions who can say to you, come on along. You know, we're worth going toward. And we've already asked people in the kind of the biblical sense, young people, create yourselves. You don't have any parents. You know what I mean? There are no parental figures.
There's no one ahead of you. And that's destructive. It's a very tough Biologically thing. and spiritually, yeah. that's destructive, you know. So, since they had no one leading them forward and no one from whom they could come, yeah. they went nowhere. So, Dan, we come back to the phrase, the idea, continuity. Comes back to that yeah, again, I continuity. Think so. I think that so. there Connection. Must be a sense of history, a sense of past, where you came from, they know where you're going. So, yeah. where. Now then, what do you see? You spoke of longevity in your family, so I see you hitting the year 2000, assuming <laughs> that uh, no nut pushes a button, and there it is. So, thoughts now, as before we say goodbye for now and let you yeah. rest before you take off, God knows where, or Berrigan perhaps knows where tomorrow. Thoughts now, you've been talking here and you've been talking everywhere about the barbarity of our Vietnamese adventure. Mm and your feelings at this moment. Yeah. Well, um, it's really very simple, and I think, um, you know, I should say that um, one of the young teachers who was here tonight said, um, you know, some of the Catholic students in Loyola of Chicago don't find you very relevant. And they've been reading your books and all this, and they think, well, Berrigan is interesting, but he's passed and all. And I've been hearing this so long. As you are past? Oh, yeah. And uh, No Bars to Manhood and the Catonsville Trial and all these books. They said, well, you know, he really isn't speaking to us anymore. So I said, well, I've been living through my lifetime with people who have been declared irrelevant, like Martin King and Gandhi and Christ, and Socrates. And, and your father. Philip and myself. Well, all of us, you know, I think that maybe one way of putting the idiocy of what we're going through is, you know, are you willing to be irrelevant? See, don't we come back to the question raised earlier about yeah. no belief in any past, yeah. good, bad, or indifferent, I think, <laughs> and we come back to yeah. it again, don't we? And yet, you know, like, if they declare me irrelevant, I won't declare them irrelevant. I always say, you know, young people to me are extremely relevant. But I won't dedicate myself to saying the last word you want to hear, you know, because your word probably is violence, and your word probably is despair, and I'm not for that, you know. And if you want to catch up with me, okay, and if you want to leave me behind, okay, but I'm around. Yeah. I'm around. I, I think perhaps that's the, <laughs> I think that's the way to say goodbye for now. Okay. That Dan Berrigan, and your brother Phil, and you, you're around. Yeah. And I think, I think we feel very good in the fact okay. that you are around and feel better for it as a result. Oh, lovely. Okay. Thank you very much. And same here. Thank you.